Welcome to This Podcast is Not for Profit. Our sector is full of big hearts, tiny budgets, and audacious goals. Join us as we explore the forces shaping the nonprofit sector, speak to experts and innovators, and share stories from the front lines of the fight to end hunger, poverty, and create more inclusive communities. Welcome back, listener. We've been on a bit of a hiatus over the last few months as, like many of you, we've had to pivot and adjust to the COVID-19 global pandemic. United Ways across the country have been on the front line raising vital dollars, supporting frontline workers, and advocating for relief funds to target the most vulnerable in the community. I'm excited to be back and share some of the stories from the front line. We often hear the term too big to fail applied to banks and automakers, but the nonprofit sector is too important to fail. Not only are we a vital economic engine, we are also the social safety net that catches people when they fall. In hard economic times, it it is our services that can mean the difference between sharing a family meal together or choosing to skip a meal so your kids can eat. We are the food bank that feeds a family who lost their paycheck. We are the after-school program that keeps a kid from joining a gang. And we are the crisis support line that provides hope at the end of the period of darkness. And we are the job training program that provides a light at the end of the tunnel. Though the pandemic has been keeping us apart, it has undoubtedly brought us together. While so much is uncertain right now, one thing we know for sure, it is that we are all connected. We need one another, some of us more than others. In my interview with Don Seymour, the executive director of Wesley Urban Ministries, he says that we're seeing a community of generosity even among those who have very little. The sacredness of humanity comes through in everybody. These difficult circumstances are shining a light on cracks in our social supports and are requiring those on the front line to pivot and find ways to do more with even less. This isn't really new to the sector, but it certainly has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Marginalized people are disproportionately affected by lockdown measures. Were those of us privileged enough to stay at home, order groceries online, set up Zoom meetings with our friends, and binge listen to our favorite podcasts, too many others are struggling to keep their heads above water, no longer able to access the services and supports they rely on to survive. We are also seeing unprecedented levels of cooperation between shelters, public health, and city that have resulted in exceptionally low numbers of COVID cases within those vulnerable populations here in Hamilton and Halton. Resources are flowing, folks are collaborating and finding ways to take care of those who are in support, and the community is rallying around these efforts. We've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars thanks to the generosity of our donors over the last couple of months. Over the next few months, we're going to pivot this podcast to highlight some of the stories of these projects and of these stories such as the Good Soup Project that is rescuing excess food to help feed socially isolated seniors precariously housed in other vulnerable populations during COVID-19, or how school custodians voluntarily redeployed to deliver food to students who would typically access in-school food programs, or about collaboration between organizations doing street outreach to make sure even the hardest to reach demographics are not being left behind during the pandemic. These stories illuminate the generosity and dedication of social service frontline workers in our community and show why the social service sector is too important to fail. I hope you enjoy the following episodes and find some hope 
and the kindness and generosity that illuminates the community during this dark time. He is the executive director of Food for Life, which is a leading food reclamation and redistribution charity in Halton that distributes over 4 million pounds of food to neighbors in need in our communities. Uh, in 2018, Food for Life was actually named one of the top 10 charities in the country by Charity Intelligence and has been doing some really interesting things as COVID has struck our community. Uh, welcome, Graham. Hey, thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Uh, first, can you just tell me a little bit about Food for Life? Uh, what kind of services do you provide? Who do you serve? Uh, just give us a little sense about your organization. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Um, so uh, we're a United Way funded agency um, uh, through uh, Halton Hamilton. Um, we've been serving the community uh, as a longtime partner. This is actually our 25th year of operations. Kind of what a year to have a little hindsight in 2020. But we, um, you know, remarkably, we kind of joke internally that we've been training for this moment for 24 years. Um, and, uh, and really have a chance to, uh, to bring the power of rescued food to the forefront because that's what we've done ever since we started. Uh, we've been rescuing food and impacting lives, um, primarily rescuing it from grocery stores, retailers, restaurants, um, and uh, producer groups and, uh, and farmers. Uh, and then we uh, get that food out and we share it really in one of two main ways. Um, one is through our charity partners that have food as part of their programming or supports um, to neighbors in the community. And then we also, uh, through a uh, aligned network of, uh, of neighborhood programs run by volunteers, um, we get food direct to neighbors as well. Yes. And, and for those of you listening who maybe aren't quite as familiar with the model, when Graham talks about rescued food, I mean, he really is talking about pretty high quality food um, that is really um, that they're, that they're, that you're able to sort of provide to people. This is food that you would see in a typical grocery store. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that point of clarity, Mike. And, and just to even take it one step further, we, we have a, a premise. If we won't eat it ourselves, we will not serve it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've been into your warehouse and I've definitely seen the food and said, wow, this is uh, this looks pretty good. So uh, um, so, you know, a lot of a lot of organizations right now are in lockdown. Right. And a lot of people are, you know, uh, obeying the government orders to stay inside. But, you know, I think like a lot of organizations, Food for Life, you know, is on the front line and it seems like you guys are busier than ever. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how COVID has affected your organization and how you've had to really pivot uh, to respond? And what, what are some of the needs that have emerged as a result of, uh, of COVID? Yeah, you know, it's been a really interesting one. I, I remember I, I was ready to, to head away from my March break with my kids on the 13th. Uh, of March, um, then the formal pandemic was called, and um, life as as we know it changed. I mean, it was starting to change up to that, um, but that was for me really the the pivot point for us, where um, you know we rounded back as a team. We looked at the situation. We knew that we were were an essential service, but we didn't know in what capacity or what was even going to be possible. I mean, this was something not like a fire or a natural disaster. Um, no one really knew what the scope of this was, prevention, uh, all that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, we first went back to our team and said, you know what, just a simple question. Um, if we need to serve and we need to be called upon to serve, are we willing to serve? Uh, and this was what we call the white flag moment. 
uh, where it was absolutely right for our team to wave the white flag and say, no, we're just going to sit on the sidelines for this one, um, you know, until we know it's completely safe for us to do so. Um, but our, our team stepped up and, uh, and they have the chance every week to wave the white flag at any time um, and, uh, and step back. Um, but uh, our team stepped forward and said, no, this is what we're called for. And, um, you know, we're, we're here to, to serve. And um, by no means, I use that language, not in a religious term, but just a, you know, a sense of duty to our fellow humanity and, and our fellow neighbors. Um, and so we pivoted um, and we went from uh, primarily what was a, a little bit more of a grocery store model, uh, which was our neighborhood programs, especially um, where uh, we would drop off bulk food. Neighbors would come in, they'd interact. Uh, they'd have a great social experience uh, with each other, with the volunteers. They'd take their food and then they'd head home. And, and that whole process would last you know, anywhere from half an hour to two hours. And it was a social experience. And uh, we went from that to all of a sudden churches being closed. Um, and a lot of our programs would run out of faith-based organizations because they have volunteers and parking. Um, and uh, we went to uh, look at our other charity partners and a lot of them closed. Mm. Uh, because they couldn't social distancing or their programs couldn't operate. Um, so all of a sudden we went from this 107 different programs uh, overnight to, down to about 20. Wow. And yeah, and it, it was shocking. Um, it really was shocking because we then looked at, okay, how could we get food out to people safely? Um, and at the same time, the other side of this was happening is the food supply chain uh, obviously is a big machine um, and it doesn't stop. So we had these massive food donations coming in um, to us, restaurant grade, institutional size donations mm. um, that you can't give out to an average individual. Yeah. I mean, we're talking yeah. 50 pound turkeys, we're talking 30 pound hams. Um, you know, and, and so all of a sudden at the same time, people are saying, well, you know, there may not be enough to eat. We're just like, well, wait, we, we have more than enough and it's healthy and it's good. How do we get that out? And that's where all the, the pivoting took place. Um, and, uh, and, and it's been some incredible stuff. I mean, uh, really within a week and a half, um, we were able to retool uh, and refine to going from large bulk scale distribution to a pre-packed program uh, where everything is pre-packed, put into bags, moved out the door, and then delivered in some cases um, direct to neighbor. We've never done direct to neighbor delivery before. Um, we partner with Halton Region. Um, to help reach those that were the most vulnerable, who may be isolated or quarantined um, and may not have any other food supports. Um, we worked with Wesley Urban Ministries and Halton Housing um, to actually reach those that were starting to be housed in hotels and motels uh, as they looked at their housing plan for, uh, for those that are underhoused or hard to house um, or you know, have other life conditions that, that were challenging, um, congregate settings, et cetera. And then we, we also looked at what do we do with all this bulk food that we're getting in? Um, and that's what launched our, uh, our Good Soup project, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit more later. Um, uh, you know, how do we make sure that this food, great food isn't going to waste and spoiling um, because it is time sensitive. And we also knew at the same time that uh, a lot of seniors now were isolated. Um, they couldn't cook for themselves, they're scared. Um, so how do we get food that's accessible um, to them? Um, so all these things kind of came together. And I got to say, you know, there was a, a two-week period where, and I know you guys felt it as well, you, you weren't sure when the wheels were going to come off the treadmill or if they were, because you're trying to keep up with all the announcements, the changing landscapes, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, it's, it's this, it's that, and all the different funding announcements. And all, 
everything that had an implication on, on service uh, were all happening at once. But once we were through that, um, you know, things have kind of settled down into a little bit of a routine. Uh, we're now back up to probably about 65 to 70 programs um, in community, uh, which is a great news piece. Um, our volumes are increasing uh, about 30%. Uh, there's still plenty of food in the system, healthy, good food. Uh, so no one has to worry about that. Um, and uh, the real big challenge right now is, you know, helping people through this period of, um, you know, kind of the, the pending recovery, um, you know, starting to hopefully make things safer for people to get out uh, and to get access to that food so we can open up more of these programs and really make it what we intended to do is to be as hyper local as possible um, so people don't have to travel a great distance to, to get their food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's so, you know, I, I think back to those early days and it's hard to believe that it's been two months. Um, I, you know, that, that it's been that long since this all started. And I think back to some of those early days where, you know, you, where I walked into a grocery store and I saw empty shelves, right. And sort of that feeling. And it really made me think about how for a lot of people that is an everyday experience, right? They experience those empty shelves because they can't afford that food, right? They have to make hard choices in their lives. And this was just something that, you know, I think, I'm hoping that this is this ends up being a sort of a massive empathy experiment uh, in a sense in a sense where people realize the kind of fundamental indignity about that uh, and 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 you know I think for a lot of people it, it also revealed the kind of immense complexity of this food system and and I think what you're what you're really sort of sharing here with the, just that little example of how institutional food right like these cafeterias and these institutions that are shut down and that are receiving these huge orders you know, it's not that there isn't enough food out there. There's still just as much food out there. It's just that, you know, our system is very just in time and very, very much geared towards particular outlets. And so it's it's really incredible to hear how quickly, you know, you've been able to shift and really the kind of importance that, that nonprofit organizations like yourselves have to be able to in, in essence, be a bit of a, a, a relief valve to the system, because I could imagine that for a lot of, you know, without you as an intermediary, I mean, certainly, you know, those kinds of institutional level amounts of food, they aren't possible for households to deal with. Right. And it's and we're just starting to see the grocery stores starting to break things down. Like I remember a couple of weeks ago seeing, you know, uh, the Fortinos and whatnot breaking down yeast into small packets, right? Um, so like this is stuff that they're getting in their bakeries, right? And and you don't think about that, right? But you guys have been able to retool very quickly to be able to essentially provide that service for individuals. Yeah, and, and I gotta say, Mike, your yeast example is a great one. Um, you know, it, it's funny when we pivoted as a team, and, and I really do mean it's a team. Um, I'm very privileged to work with the most exceptional group of individuals that I've ever worked with. Um, just from a, a talent standpoint, a knowledge standpoint, a caring standpoint, um, they're just exceptional. And they, they really made this happen. And uh, it was all hands on deck. And it still continues to iterate. I mean, we're consistently learning, seeking input, figuring out how to do it better or differently or safer. Um, and, uh, and to your point, it, it's been really fascinating for people, I think, to see the food system from a different angle. Um, you know, the people who are waiting in line at grocery stores now, you can you can kind of sum that up to someone who has to wait in line, um, you know, for, for a food program or a traditional food bank. 
um, you know, what's that experience like to not have that necessarily freedom of choice and movement um, in getting something that is a fundamental human right, which is access to good, healthy food. Um, that fear of um, not having enough, um, which is, you know, what drives panic buying. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of, um, you know, nudge and prescription pieces that, you know, we could delve into. And I, I hope we'll yield some really good, um, fruitful dialogues after this. And I know there's a couple that are happening now, um, even as we're entering that recovery phase, um, about, about what does that really look like? I mean, you know, people are, uh, and what we're hearing is they're questioning their, their ability to eat meat. Um, you know, they, they question the safety of the system. They question, you know, the movement of food and go local versus go global. Um, all these dialogues that have always happened sometimes on the sidelines are now mainstream. Uh, and people actually have the time to understand the evidence behind it um, and really make some informed decisions. Whereas without this, we've just been so busy, we, we kind of glean it. And then all of a sudden, you know, people are making recommendations about injecting Lysol as a, as a treatment. Um, you know, and, uh, and those things, you know, with food security, something as fundamental as food, um, you want to make sure you're having a really educated dialogue on it because the answers are right there in front of us. Um, it's just taking the time to understand them. Yeah, it certainly has put the security back in food security uh, and, and really, I think, made people realize how fundamentally important it is. And, and maybe, you know, like certain aspects of our medical system around PPE and other sort of, you know, drugs and other things that we don't have access to, maybe that sort of just-in-time model isn't always the best, right? And it's sort of, I think it's revealing some real gaps in the system. And, and, and I, I like to think about this in terms of the kind of nonprofit sector as well. And I'm wondering if we can maybe shift tack to sort of a bigger picture view. Uh, you know, I think some what 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 this is really revealing is some of the fundamental kind of, um, uh, you know, problems or issues around the nonprofit sector and how much um, pressure has been put on the system to do more with less to really sort of to, to kind of innovate without having the kind of infrastructure around it, to collaborate without having the infrastructure around it. And, and you know, we've, we've gotten used to a kind of um, almost like a, an attitude where we say, we can't do this, we can't afford it. And I think what a lot of people are realizing right now is, wait a minute, then where did all of these resources just come from, right? Like the mobilization in the last month has been incredible, right? I mean, the, the the hundreds of millions of dollars flowing down from the feds, the kind of collaboration and coordination, you know, you and I sit on a number of different task forces and tables and the kind of flow of information that's going between different partners, the way in which we're sort of so much more open, like it's pretty incredible. And it makes me wonder what stopped us before, right? Um, yeah, no, listen, I'm with you. I mean, you know, there's that, the big movement right now with Imagine Canada, as you know, and mm. um, Bruce and his leadership there around, you know, 680 million reasons why, um, you know, the federal government needs to step in and, and help the nonprofit sector, um, you know, kind of with that resiliency fund. Well, yeah, I, I'd actually expand a million reasons why. Um, and that's, that's for every Canadian. I mean, we know that the nonprofit charitable sector does more than just fill boutique needs or niches yeah. or save forests. You know, it gives us that social license um, to think and to dream of a better world and put it into action. Um, and, you know, I think it's amazing when we think about 
Um, how do we inspire our youth to be better people? And you know, for those who are in the religious community, they may find it through scripture or through prayer. Um, and for others, they may find it you know, through service and action and, and or both. Um, and the nonprofit sector really offers that. And yet we treat the nonprofit sector um, you know, as nonprofit. So therefore it seems to be seen as lesser than. And I, I gotta say, you know, there's been some really positive movements, whether it was social innovation funding and some of the work that you guys are doing at United Way or uh, the, the Mars Apprentice Program. Um, you know, there's a number of things that are, are kind of leading this kind of shift to the gray area, um, uh, you know, which is that hybrid between, you know, the classic business model and, you know, what I'd call the humanity of the nonprofit model. And, um, you know, we're guilty of it from, you know, how we recruit our boards, uh, the mentality of, of, of leadership um, and trying to scrape by and do what I call just enough. Um, which is we have just enough resources to do stuff, but quite often we're fearful or don't have the ability of resources to do what really needs to be done. Um, and uh, and those risks are the ones that right now that are being taken. I mean, I, I look at healthcare and for what, almost seven years, um, the idea of doing virtual telehealth was debated back and forth and really about billing and how this, and literally within 24 hours and a stroke of a pen, boom, we had telehealth. <laughs> I, I mean, those types of things are completely doable. And like you mentioned, the number of the round tables and, you know, that are happening, um, you know, we don't want a pandemic all the time for this stuff to happen. But if those, those things are out there and we can actually look beyond ourselves as organizations to the greater good of society, and a lot of that starts right at the government level with how charities are registered, how they're engaged and how they're, they're, uh, kind of engaged or inspired to collaborate right out of the gate. And instead of competing for dollars, how do we bring dollars in to solve a societal issue and then bring the partners around the table to figure out how together we can solve that issue? Um, and, and it's a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a mind shift, but I think this pandemic has shown us that this is being done in neighborhoods, it's being done in regions, it's being done in provinces, it's being done in territories and countries. So it's doable. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And I think, again, like if we think about kind of, and it's hard to think about silver linings during such a terrible, terrible time that's affecting so many people, but I think, you know, the real tragedy would be if we didn't learn a lesson from from all of this and if we didn't take something from, from this whole experience and really push it forward and say, because, you know, I think about what, what would have this, what would have all of this looked like had we invested in the social safety net in the way that we always should have been right mm -hmm. and and you know i think whether it's um you know whether it's universal basic income or whether it's um you know whether it's just really strong programs and supports that ensure that nobody falls through whatever system you're talking about you know making sure that people are caught when they fall through the cracks and that they're given the opportunity to bounce back up, to turn that safety net into a trampoline, right? Is so crucial. Uh, and and we've we've we've, you know, I think as a society, we've basically said that's not possible. And I think what what I'm hoping is that COVID has shown us that yes, it is. It absolutely is. And it's necessary because in the end, when it comes to these kind of maybe it is a once in a lifetime, once in a generation kind of event. You know, I I'm sure that the cost of this response would have been 
easily absorbed by the kind of proactive, um, you know, if we were doing this much more proactively and systemically and, and thoughtfully right. over uh, more than just two months, right? I totally agree. Listen, um, you know, as a former lifeguard, um, you know, I, I got to say, you know, there are a lot of similarities between this and, and lifeguarding. Mm -hmm. You know, people would be thoroughly, thoroughly out, just raving in the streets, you know, if you had five or six people drowning in a pool every day. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And that's and that's what's happening right now. And, and to your point, you know, as a food rescue organization, you know, we don't want to be in business. So from the environmental side, Let's put in the, the system so that we're making enough food and we're getting food into the right channels. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, I agree with you. Universal basic income, you know, while it's not perfect out of the gate, I'd rather modify and work with the system that is supporting people right away um, than all the patchwork type pieces. And I, I have a feeling that, you know, um, wh whether it's this government um, and if any government, I think they have you know, not the majority to do it, but I, I think there's the will to do something inspirational like that, but we'll see. Um, but until that happens, you know, I, I think this shows us that if we as a sector can come together during a time like this, then maybe we can actually inspire the government to take that step to say, this is how hard we're running to do what you could do with the stroke of a pen. Um, and I'm watching a lot of my fellow senior leaders um, you know, who are carrying a lot of the weight of the organizations and their, their staff's lives, their families' lives um, on their shoulders. And, you know, it's hard. It's emotionally draining um, to know that this could all be solved um, with that kind of stroke of a pen for basic income. Um, and, uh, you know, as at least as a good starting point. And, you know, if we put in that lifeguard mentality and we're preventing people from even reaching the cracks, and that speaks to your idea about programs and infrastructure and, you know, dialogue. It's easily doable. We've seen it being done in Finland and, you know, in Sweden and, and some of the other, Denmark, um, you know, that, that it is doable. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a will, right? And I, I hope that us as a nonprofit sector, as a charitable sector, as a social enterprise sector can inspire government to say, wait, you know, you guys shouldn't have to be running as hard all the time to do this when, when this is our responsibility as a government to lead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm wondering, you know, if we can sort of to riff off of that a little bit, you know, one of the things I think, again, silver lining, I think one of the really exciting things that I've sort of seen emerge is some of the collaboration that's been happening here. And so one of the things um, that we've done in the last uh, couple of, couple of, well, in the last month or so is we've, we've had sort of a, we call it an ED support group. Uh, yeah. and sort of facilitating kind of collaboration, information sharing, uh, and really sort of that flow of information around around individuals. So not specifically on that, but like I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about what are some of the things that excite you about some of the collaborations that are emerging? I know you mentioned a soup project, uh, and I think that pushes the boundaries a little bit because you're collaborating with actually a, with some for-profits as well with this and, and looking at it as a kind of a social enterprise as well. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about collaboration and 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 what you guys are doing and what you're seeing and, and how you think that kind of maps onto a path forward. Sure. Yeah, no, no, happy to. And uh, yeah, I participate in that ED um, support group, which is great. And we get to hear about all the different collaborations at all these roundtables as well. Um, the soup project was one that was born out of that, um, A, out of necessity, as I mentioned, with all the food. Um, but we also needed to find somebody who is operating and still operating a kitchen. Um, and so we partnered with Nouveau Taste. 
um, they were operating a kitchen supporting, uh, of all things, public health with meals um, and their expansive team that's doing such great work on the, on the ground. Um, so we were able to find a way that helped keep people employed because they were getting ready to lay off employees in their kitchen um, and also generate a product in a safe, efficient way um, and get it back out to the community. And hence the Good Soup Project was born. Um, and there's been a lot of flexibility, a lot of great community partners that are tied into that. Um, the idea will be hopefully to, to migrate this and turn it into uh, a social enterprise that will help um, you know, build capacity and lift people up out of poverty of their own choosing, um, you know, through participation. And, you know, we also see things at, at a grassroots level where, you know, we find organizations that, you know, historically have been competitors in a marketplace, all of a sudden having common challenges um, and coming together to say, hey, wait, in order for us both to keep existing and serving our respective neighborhoods, we need to come together, even though our neighborhoods aren't even close to each other, we need to come together and work together um, to share resources, to share staff, to um, you know share facilities in some cases, to share best practices. Um, and, I, and I think that bodes really well because at a time of plenty, it's easy for us to navel gaze and think this is only my backyard that I have to worry about and not look at how things are interconnected as an ecosystem. And we're really seeing a lot of for-profit, non-profit, um, because everyone's being impacted at the same time, people are understanding, wait, we have a common enemy here, um, you know, which is this virus, but we have a common solution, which is to help our fellow person. Um, and, and that's where all these perfectly imperfect solutions are growing. Uh, and we're able to see them and tag on to them and add to them or amplify them. Um, and, uh, and a lot of other people are doing those as well, whether it's Henrik's bike shop, where he's fixing people's bikes so they can go out riding, he's donating the profits to us at Food for Life, or mm. whether it's the bottle drive, where uh, people are going out, Burlington dads are, are picking up um, bottles and, and returning them um, at a time that people are afraid to go out, yet here's a resource that needs to get back into the recycling chain to mm. keep that moving. Um, and raising money for great local causes as well. So um, there's so many of these things that I think as we look at them, the answers again are right there in front of us. Um, I thought the need on the food system was gonna be even greater than what it was, Mike, but what we're seeing is we're seeing neighbors take care of neighbors, communities take care of communities. Um, and it's going back to the way that things used to be in a lot of cases. Um, where people have the resources, they just didn't have the time to dedicate them. Um, and now they're having the time. And I hope out of this that we'll slow down as a society and let the earth breathe again, um, because I, I think that's so vitally important. Yeah, it's really, it's a really good point. And I think, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm hoping that this clarifies what's important and what are the things that we want to keep as we move forward. I mean, it is a tremendous opportunity to think, you know, as we rebuild, there's no reason we have to rebuild in the same way. Right. Uh, and, and we can, we can do better. Um, we can do better in terms of how we rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, it's uh, you know, it's like receiving a brand new thing of Lego for your birthday yeah. um, and kind of going, okay, you know what? I don't need the manual. Yeah. What do I want to What do I want to build? Um, yeah. And uh, and I think there's enough great leaders that are out there and uh, and people who are who are done following and want to step up, um, you know, of all generations of all ages. Um, and I, I share, you know, a real positive note, um, you know, Mike. Just to uh, first of all say thank you for the opportunity to to chat about this stuff. I mean, it's a an area that I know is passionate for both of us. But 
you know, I think it comes back to a lady that I met. This was about week three of, of the crisis. Um, we were partnering with Halton Community Housing to get some food in um, to a seniors building. And, um, you know, as we're going down, we're delivering the food. A lady comes out um, and uh, her name was Gail and uh, she was in her late 80s. And uh, I asked her, I'm like, oh, Gail, you know, do you, you, know, do you need any food? And um, she goes, no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm okay. And I said, oh, okay. And I just dealt with a lady who needed food. And, and I said, you know, how come? She's like, well, you know what? I've been through the war and I've been through the depression uh, and I've been through a lot in my life. And you know what? I've learned that, that I can live on what I need, not what I want. Mm. And I said, oh, so what, what is that? She goes, I got my cabbage. I got my carrots. I got my mm -hmm. potatoes. And you know, while it's nothing fancy and I used to like fancy meals, it's enough that, that, that I have. Um, at a time where it reduces my stress, knowing that I don't necessarily need to have X, Y, and Z, I can live on this. Mm. And, and to me, that, that really gave me a lot of hope because as we get the phone calls of people who will call and say, hey, uh, I didn't get my particular brand of X, um, or maybe I needed this, or maybe I need, I can share that story with them just to give them a little bit of perspective of, while it may not be ideal right now, it's good enough to get you through and then, you know, it gets people to think about their values. Well, it's what's a need and what's versus a want, um, both individually for their families. And hopefully that, that extends out into community when we start to re reprioritize, not what companies tell us and marketers tell us we should want for our life or our, our society, but what we really truly want and where do we find happiness. Well, it's, uh, I couldn't think of a better way to end this discussion. And I want to thank you so much for um, for for taking the time um, from your busy schedule and for sharing some of these really inspirational stories about uh, about how you know your organization has really pivoted uh, and and is really playing an absolutely crucial role uh, in 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 not just feeding. You know, in well, in feeding that need, but also determining that that want uh, in the community. So thank thank you so much. Oh, Michael, it's a pleasure, and uh, and thanks for all you guys are doing it. Uh, we rely on our amazing partners to make this all happen, and uh, very proud to to count United Way, Halton Hamilton as uh, as one of those amazing allies. Thank you so much. Let's continue to bring the unignorable issues affecting our community to the forefront. I would like to thank all of our guests and dedicated listeners. This podcast was brought to you by United Way, Halton and Hamilton. Stay social with us and keep the conversation going by following us at United Way HH on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and United Way, Halton and Hamilton on LinkedIn and YouTube.